My name is Justin Tarosian, as you've heard. I grew up in a small town in Northern California on the top of a, a mountain, although we call it a hill. Um, some people call it the Holy Hill. It's where Pacific Union College is, and it is a piece of land that God actually revealed to Ellen White in vision that we should purchase as a church. And um, anyhow, I lived there the first 22 years of my life. I was blessed to go to college there and uh, then moved to Central California, where I worked for four years as a pastor and a year before that as a Bible worker, but four years as a pastor in uh, 1,100 member church. It was a large church there in Fresno. And you may have heard of a man named Pastor Stephen Bohr. Anybody? All right. He is my, my good friend, mentor, and my senior pastor for those years and uh, enjoyed my time there. For the last three months, I've been at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And uh, it is incredibly cold, especially compared to here right now. We're in our fall, and I am excited to be here in the summer. We had a beautiful day, and the weather was incredible. Um, people, you know, the weather may be cold outside, but people's hearts tend to be warm. Anyhow, I'm there studying, getting my master's degree, and we'll be... Uh, back in the workforce in California in about two years. So that's what's going on with me right now, and I am more than happy to give up my, it's not really giving up my Thanksgiving break to come here, but it gives me more of a reason to be grateful and to be thankful to be here in Australia with my new church family. So I'm happy and blessed to be here with you tonight and excited about what the Lord wants to share with each one of us this coming week. Justin, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to tonight. I didn't know if you wanted me to mention my lineage. I, I forgot. Oh, yes, <laughs> please, please. Um, I am the, or my great-great-great-grandparents on one side of my family are James and Ellen White. And they are two people who God used in incredible ways. And uh, my life has been transformed by reading the, the materials that God has written through both of them, especially Ellen White, of course. And uh, we are so blessed to be a part of a church that is built on the backs of, or built on the foundation of the work of our pioneers, amen? Not just James and Ellen, but the many pioneers that sacrificed in order for us to have a worldwide movement that's still thriving and growing today. So I'm blessed to be a part of this movement, and I'm glad that you're here tonight as well to hear about how God has led in our past and is wanting to lead us today as well. Praise God. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible starts its book of Revelation. The book of Revelation starts with these words. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Friends, when someone takes a witness stand in an earthly courtroom, what is one of the first things that you want to know about this individual? That they are telling the truth, isn't that right? Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is a witness, and what kind of witness does it tell us that he is? A faithful witness. Later in Revelation chapter 3, we are told that he is a faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. Now, with Jesus as a witness, we can be assured that we are going to hear the truth and nothing but the truth. Amen? And, you know, praise God that he has a message for us tonight. Do you want to hear from Jesus tonight? Amen. Now, I want to say... Christ is called the faithful and the true witness. And like it's often said, sometimes the truth hurts. Isn't that right? Sometimes the truth hurts. And in this message, Jesus does not hold back. But the good news is that Jesus never shares the plain facts when they're painful in order to hurt us, but to help us. Christ always works, never to harm, but always to heal. You still want to hear the voice of Jesus tonight. Amen. So do I. Why don't we bow our heads and ask for his presence in a special way. I'd like to invite you to pray along with me. Into my heart, 
into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, you have heard the prayer of our hearts. Lord, this is our desire. We want you to enter into our hearts, and we know that Jesus is called the faithful and the true witness. Tonight, Lord, we want to hear his voice and not the mere voice of a man. We pray that you would speak to us through the power of your spirit in an incredible way tonight, Lord, that none of us would leave these doors the same way we entered in them, but that we will leave determined to follow you more fully and give our lives to you more completely. Tonight, O oh Lord, as we examine the Laodicean dilemma. We pray that your word will be clear to us. We pray that we will clearly answer your call to us. We love you, Lord, and we ask for your presence in a special way. In Jesus' precious name, amen. It was the last decade of the first century. A majority of the first generation of Christians, those who had walked and talked with Jesus, had passed away into the sleep of death. Those who had witnessed the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit had gone to their graves. And now the Christian church faced the fiercest threat that it had faced up until this point. The Roman emperor Domitian demanded and actually decreed with a law that everyone in the kingdom of Rome had to worship him. The Christian church was faced with a serious problem. What were they going to do? They knew that they could only pay homage and give worship to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What were they going to do now that this law faced them? They needed a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. They needed to know that their Lord was in heaven and that the king who was upon his throne was infinitely greater than this proud pagan monarch. And this is exactly what happened. The last of the 12 apostles who was still alive was John the Beloved. The early church historian Tertullian tells us that when Emperor Domitian decided to try to get rid of him by throwing him in a pot of boiling oil, that when he did so, God miraculously preserved his life and John, rather than writhing in pain and losing his life, stood on the bottom of that pot of oil and continued preaching at Domitian. God preserved his life miraculously in the same way that he did with those three Hebrew men back on the plains of Dura in Babylon. Seeking to silence the voice of John the Beloved, Domitian exiled him to the lonely isle of Patmos to work in the mines, hoping that this, this man would simply pass away and die on this island. Little did Domitian know that from this island would come a revelation of Jesus Christ, a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ for all of the Christian world, not only in that day, but throughout the rest of human history. The book of Revelation opens with John's vision, his vision of Jesus, the one who is the first and the last, the one who is called the Alpha and the Omega, he saw him walking amidst the, the seven golden candlesticks there in the heavenly most holy place. The holy place, sorry, the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And as he saw Jesus there, Jesus had a specific message for him in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And I'd like to draw your attention there from which we find Jesus' message to us. You see, Jesus had a message for John to relate to the seven Christian churches across Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. While these messages are actually, were actually relevant and applicable to the seven local and literal churches there in Asia Minor, Bible students have long understood that beyond being applicable and relevant to those specific seven churches there in John's day, 
these seven churches were symbolic of time periods that God's church would go through down through time until Jesus came again in the clouds of glory. Now, friends, think about it. There were more than just seven churches in the ancient world in John's day. God could have, God could have written more than seven letters, or he could have chosen other churches, or even of the seven that he chose, he could have put them in a different order. But because these seven churches characterize what God's people would look like down through time until his second coming, God decided to write to them in that specific order and to send them those very messages. Now, I want to invite you to follow with me on the screen. For the sake of time, we're going to have the verses on the screen. In Revelation 3, verse 14, the Bible says, these things, and this is Jesus' message to the last church on the list. Before we get to the verse, I just want to say that if the last church on the list, if, the, if there is a last church on the list and the church has represented God's church down through time, then it goes to say that the last church on the list would be God's last day church. Does that make sense? The last church on the list would be God's symbolic of God's last day church church. And this is the message that Jesus has, starting in Revelation 3 and verse 14. These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Continuing on, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see. As many as I, what? Love, I rebuke and chasten. Another version says, I discipline and correct. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The last words of this message from Jesus, Revelation 3, continuing on, the last words from Jesus in this message say this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, we are living on the very verge of eternity. It doesn't take much to look around at the world around us and to recognize and realize that this world cannot hold on much longer in its present state, amen? Natural disasters taking place left and right, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes taking place more frequently than they've ever taken place before. In fact, people, uh, secular news organizations are saying things like there have never been this many natural disasters taking place at once. Last century was called the bloodiest century in human history. There were more lives lost in that century than any other century before it. Jesus is coming very soon, amen? And that is good news, amen? The Lord is coming very, very soon. We are living on the very verge of eternity. And friends, the Laodicean message, what we just read, it's for us. The natural question comes, why Laodicea? Why Laodicea? Naturally, the question comes, why would God choose this church in, in uh, Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, back then, this city that existed and the church there, why would he choose that to symbolize his people in the last days? You must be wondering, why would he choose that of all the different places? Well, I'm glad that you were wondering. I'm glad that you asked. Because tonight, we're going to discover just that together. 
The city of Laodicea was located just 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was perfectly fitting to symbolize God's people living at the end of time because the name Laodicea actually means something very significant. The name Laodicea actually means judgment of the people or a people judged. Perfectly fitting for God's people who are living in the judgment hour of earth's history. Amen? Those who are living in the investigative judgment, which has been going on since the year 1844. Laodicea means judgment of the people, a perfect symbol of God's people in the last days. Also, very interestingly, Laodicea was populated primarily with Jews and Syrians who had been called and brought out of Babylon. Students of Bible prophecy know that in the last days, the three angels' message says that the characteristic of God's last day people is that they are called out of spiritual Babylon, this system of of religious confusion. Not only are they called out of Babylon, but they're called to call others out of Babylon and false systems of religion, this false church, and to come to accept Christ and follow him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the city of Laodicea was seated in a mountain range on the south side of a valley. It was called the Lycus River Valley. The Lycus River flowed through this valley and joined with the Meander River, which was further to the west. Now, the city of Laodicea lay in the mountains on the south side of this valley. Now, on the opposite side of the the valley, on the north side, was a city called Hierapolis. What was it called? Hierapolis. Very good. Now, Hierapolis lay in this mountain range that actually had mountains ranging up to eight and 9,000 feet high. One of the key characteristics of Hierapolis was that it was famous and well-known for its hot springs. In fact, this is modern-day Hierapolis. It's called Pamukkale, and it's in Turkey. You can see the beautiful formations that there were or that there are from these uh, natural hot springs. Well, this is what was uh, a key characteristic of Hierapolis. Now, just southeast of Laodicea, about six miles away, was the city of Colossa. The city of Colossa is well known to us because the book of Colossians, the letter from, of Paul to the Colossians, was written to the Christians in the city of Colossa. Now, Laodicea had a problem, and it was a major problem. Laodicea had no water source of its own. Not an aquifer, not a well, not a single spring, nothing. So they had to do something, and they had an idea. They said, why don't we build an aqueduct? We'll build an aqueduct all the way up to Hierapolis and and plumb the water down to our city, and we'll have hot water. And then we can build another aqueduct over from Colossa and bring the water up from Colossa, and we'll have nice Icy cold Colossian water. Yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Well, maybe in theory, but they were sorely disappointed after they spent so much money to build these aqueducts. Because by the time the water, and I want to show you a, a few pictures of these aqueducts. We find ruins of them today. It must have cost much, much money because a lot of work went into the building of these pipes and the rest of Uh, these aqueducts that piped the water into the city of Laodicea. Now, this sounds like a fantastic idea, but it was only good in theory because by the time the hot waters of Hierapolis would make their way down to Laodicea, they had become lukewarm. Similarly, when the cold Colossian waters had flowed their way across to Laodicea, they were no longer cold but lukewarm. So here, Laodicea was stuck with lukewarm water from both places. What a terrible dilemma. I mean, we think, well, what's the big deal? They had water, right? You may look at it like that, but imagine with me. Just think about it. Imagine that you're out playing soccer with your friends or rugby or maybe cricket. And as you're playing soccer or rugby or cricket, you... You're so thirsty, and you say, man, I've got to get a drink of water. So you walk up to the nearest drinking fountain, just wanting to be refreshed, wanting to quench your thirst. You wipe the sweat from your brow, and you lean over the drinking fountain, you push the button, and your mouth is filled with this tepid, lukewarm water that's just 
Yeah. Does that happen to anybody else in here? All right, you know what I'm talking about then. So in the summer, nobody could drink nice, icy, cold water to quench their thirst, to cool them off. No one could jump in a nice, cold pond or, or a swimming pool to escape the oppressive heat. And think about it. What about in the wintertime? Imagine that you're walking home and it starts to rain. And as it starts to rain, it's sprinkling at first and then it gets heavier and heavier and you start to run. And as you're running, the wind picks up and it's hitting you and your clothes pretty soon are soaking wet. And as the, you finally get home, your, your mother sees that you've run all this way home and that you're cold and you're shivering. And she says, you go get ready. I'm going to turn the hot water on in the shower so you can take a warm shower and, and get warmed up and you'll be just fine. I'm going to make you some hot tea as well. So you get ready, you, you, know, you ditch your nice, icy cold, wet clothes, you get rid of your clothes and you jump in the shower and to your terrible shock, the water is no warmer than the air around you. And then your mom, of course, couldn't make you tea because there's only lukewarm water. There was not a single person in Laodicea who had not experienced the frustration of having nothing but lukewarm water. Friends, Jesus was communicating to them in a very, very key way, a way that they could understand. He was speaking to them with an object lesson that would be clear in their minds. Everybody in Laodicea had experienced this, and Jesus wanted to speak in a language that would reach everyone. Now let's examine the words of Jesus Let's examine the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, friends, let's look at what Jesus says together. Revelation 3 verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, Verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus was saying, essentially, you make me queasy. You make me sick to my stomach. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be refreshing to Jesus. Amen? I want to be nothing but a blessing to my Lord and Savior. Now, what does it mean? The question comes to mind. Jesus says, I would that you would be cold or hot. What does it mean to be spiritually hot? When we think of being on fire for the Lord, we think of being intensely committed, full of burning zeal, moving with love for Jesus, and being filled with a passion to share his life-changing word with those in spiritual darkness. It means to be heavenly-minded, loving the things of God that have eternal value. The question comes, what does it mean to be Spiritually cold. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12, the following words, and because of lawlessness, speaking of the last days to his disciples, he said, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow what? Cold. The love of many would grow cold. To be spiritually cold is exactly the opposite of being spiritually hot and on fire for the Lord. It's to be like you're shivering and distant from a fire and you realize that, that you're in a dangerous condition, that you could get hypothermia, get sick, but you, you lack the strength and the desire to move yourself closer to the fire, the warmth of God's love, to become spiritually warmed. To be spiritually cold is to be worldly, paying attention to the passing pleasures of this life. But Jesus says something very interesting about those who are cold. And I want you to put it on a shelf with me in your mind. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. But what about the lukewarm believers? What about those who are lukewarm, who Jesus says are lukewarm? By the way, that's, that's us by extension. We are the church of Laodicea. What about the lukewarm believers? These are those who want the best of both worlds. They want heaven. And they're not willing to, to let go of the ideal of heaven and saying, yes, I'm going to have eternal life and I want to spend eternity with Jesus and my loved ones, my family and friends. 
But at the same time, they're not willing to let go of the things of this earth that are holding them back from making a full commitment to the Lord. They're not willing to give, give up either their claim to heavenly things or their claim to earthly things. As one would put it, they've got plenty of talk, but they're short on their Christian walk. Listen to the following quote. Letter 44, 1903, Ellen White penned these words. The lukewarm Christian deceives both parties. He is neither a good worldling nor a good Christian. Satan uses him to do a work that no one else can do. Now, friends, sometimes we can deceive ourselves and we can say, you know, I may not be totally sold out for the Lord. I may not love to share him with the person I sit next to on the bus or, you know, I may not be doing a lot for Jesus, but I'm not against him. I'm not antagonistic toward his cause. I'm not preventing other people from doing it. Friends, with Christ, there is no real middle ground. With Jesus, there is no middle ground. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at what Jesus had to say. In Matthew 12, verse 30, he said, He who is not with me is what? Against me. And he who, and who, he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus says, there is no middle ground. If you're not with me, then you're against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. I love the way that the SDA Bible commentary puts it. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary puts it like this. The typical Laodicean Christian is content with things as they are and proud of the little progress that he has made. How many of us, friends, are, are content with things the way they are? And I have to ask this question of myself. I'm not just preaching this to you. This is a message that the Lord brought to my own heart. And as I was preparing, I, I thought, Lord, these things apply to me. I need to be more deeply committed to you. Friends, the, the Bible is called a double-edged sword in Hebrews 4, verse 12. The reason is because it doesn't only cut the hearers of the word, it cuts the one who delivers the word. And unless a message transforms the life of the preacher, it can't be preached. And friends, these words apply to me just as much as to you. The typical Laodicean Christian is content with things the way they are and proud of the little progress that he has made. I've all too often been willing to be content with things the way they are. You know, I've heard of a fantastic quote, one of my favorites. It says, be content with what you have, but never with what you are. We can always be more like Jesus, amen? And Christ is our high and holy ideal. Jesus is our ideal. Now, the next part of the quote, first part says, content with things the way they are. The next part says that the Laodicean Christians are proud of the little progress that they have made. You know, I heard a story of a teacher who'd been teaching at a high school for 20 years. She applied for a position that had opened up in administration, and she was sure that she would get the job because the only other person who had applied was a teacher who had been teaching for four years. Well, when about a month later, the committee made a decision, the principal let everyone know that this teacher who had been teaching for only four years had been given the position. Well, to this teacher's shock, she, she spoke to the principal later that afternoon. She went into his office and she said, how could you give this position to this other teacher who only taught for four years and I've been teaching here for 20? The principal said, have a seat, please. And she said, no, no, I, I need an answer. The principal said, well, that teacher has taught for four years. You have taught one year, repeated 19 times. You have taught one year, repeated 19 times. Friends, are we content with the little progress that we have made? Are we pointing back to the things that happened 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 years ago at, at our conversion or at the beginning of our walk with Jesus? Or are we allowing the Lord to do new and beautiful things in our lives day by day? Don't get me wrong. We are to look back at the blessings of God in the past, amen? Amen. They are an encouragement, and we should never forget the blessings of the Lord. We should ever be sharing them with others. 
But by depending on our experience in the past, we may be missing out on what God wants to do in our lives in the here and now, amen? Let us not be content with the little progress we have made, amen? Let's move on and allow God to do incredible things in our lives. The Bible tells us that we are not to be stagnant as Christians. The last words of Peter in any of his letters that we have in Scripture, 2 Peter 3, verse 18, says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter says, grow in grace and in what? And in knowledge. Not only in knowledge, but also in grace. Grace is the application of the knowledge, the allowing God to transform us and to change us. It's worth noting that Jesus doesn't just give the message to the Laodiceans in the city of Laodicea. Jesus wasn't writing this message. He wasn't giving this message to the city of Laodicea. He was giving this message to the Christian church in the city of Laodicea. You see the difference? Now, the Christians had become so much like the rest of the city that there was virtually no difference between them. And God wanted a line and a mark of distinction between his people and those who didn't know him. They, rather than converting the city to the Lord, had been changed to become more like everyone else around them. And friends, God desires today for his children to live their lives in such a way that the strangers on the street will be able to look at them and to know that they are followers of Jesus, amen? People should be able to look at us, to see our smiles, to see our genuine care for each other, and believe and recognize that we are followers of Jesus. Not in some weird way that we stand out, no, but in an attractiveness, by a loveliness of character, gentleness, kindness. Others should be able to tell that there is something different about us, amen? That we are not just, um, that we are followers of God and that that following is transforming our lives by his grace. Now, I said we'd come back to this question and I asked you to put it on a shelf in your mind. Now I'm gonna ask you to take it off the shelf as we study it out together. I said we'd come back to this question about being cold. God says something very interesting. Jesus said something very interesting in Revelation 3, verse 16. Actually, 15 and 16. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, we've talked about what being spiritually hot means. It means being on fire for the Lord, amen? It means being excited about our faith, willing to share it. We talked about being cold, how it means just the opposite of that, being distant from the Lord and being contrary to him. So let me ask you something. Why would Jesus say, I would that you would be cold or hot? Why wouldn't Jesus say, I would that you would be hot? I want you to be on fire for me. Why would he say, I would that you would be cold or hot? I'd like to suggest to you that it's because rather than being lukewarm, being cold is actually better. God would rather us be cold than be lukewarm because there's hope for somebody who is distant from the Lord. You see, someone who is distant from God, they know that they're distant from God. They know that their life isn't in his hands. They can recognize that they need help. But someone who thinks that they're okay when they're actually not, that is a place of danger. This is why God says it's better to be cold than to be lukewarm. Because those who are spiritually cold are more likely to sense their need of Jesus. And friends, from the stranger on the street to the preacher in the pulpit, everyone needs Jesus. Amen? All of us need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that when Jesus spoke in John chapter 6, he said, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen? Jesus has never, ever turned away a sincere seeker of truth, someone who is wanting to give their life to him and to have it be transformed. He has never turned one away, not a single one, and he never will. We serve a good Lord. Amen? Now, We've spoken at length about this major problem of the Laodicean church, but being lukewarm is not the greatest dilemma of the Laodiceans. 
the news actually gets worse. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the Bible says, and specifically Christ is speaking to the church of Laodicea, and he gives five adjectives, five descriptions of the church. He says, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, but you don't realize you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I want to start with this description, poor. We're going to go through the last three together. He says, you're poor. Why would Jesus tell the church in the city of Laodicea that they were poor? Fascinatingly enough, did you know that Laodicea, of all places in the Middle East, was like the Wall Street of the Middle East in its day? Laodicea was the richest place in the Middle East. It was a banking center. In fact, it was so rich that in AD 60, when a massive earthquake destroyed the city of Laodicea, the Roman governor, or excuse me, the Roman emperor offered money so that the city of Laodicea could rebuild itself, and the city members said, you know what, emperor, you can keep your money. We'll rebuild the city out of our own pockets. We don't need your financial help. Listen to what one commentator and historian has said. Grant Osborne describes what happened. He says, moreover, the buildings that were, excuse me, Moreover, the buildings that resulted from the reconstruction were remarkable. A gymnasium, a stadium with a semicircular track 900 feet long, a triple gate and towers, and several beautiful buildings. In other words, the town was perhaps even more beautiful after the reconstruction. So not only did they rebuild the city, but they made it more beautiful and more incredible than it was before. The city of Laodicea was rich, and not just a little bit rich. It was very, very rich. So we understand Jesus was telling the church, look, he was giving them a shocking message. He said, look, in spite of the gold that is in your hands, you're spiritually poor. In spite of your physical and monetary wealth, you're spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing there. You think and feel like you're all right but you're going through the motions. You're not all right. How about us today? David says in Psalm 19, verse 10, that God's word is more valuable than gold. And friends, today we have been blessed with a greater treasure of truth than any other people before us. We have the accumulated knowledge of every single generation that has gone before us. We have an incredible storehouse of truth, don't we? We have clear understandings of prophecy and the great beams of biblical light that, regained, that were regained in the Protestant Reformation. We have all the accumulated knowledge of every generation before us. It is at our fingertips. Literally, we often have it on our smartphones and on our computers at home. You know, in the, and we're going to talk about this more on a future night, but in the past, in the dark ages, the devil wanted to keep the word of God from the people, and the Bibles were literally chained to the pulpits. Did you know that? The Bibles were in some churches and cathedrals chained to the pulpits. But now we're surrounded with Bibles. People would, would give their lives sometimes for just pages of the Bible. Yet now we're flooded with Bibles, and we're so busy, so busy, that oftentimes we don't make time and take time to study the word and to pray. Friends, we may be blessed with these great truths, but are we making good use of them? It's all too easy to have a head full of knowledge, but a heart void of the Spirit of God. Are we spiritually poor like Laodicea is the question. The next description that Jesus gives is that the Laodicean church is blind. This is fascinating as well because Laodicea was the center of a large medical school. In fact, this medical school that was there in Laodicea, a Greek historian named Strabo tells us that there was a world-famous ophthalmologist there. Now, I want to ask, how many of you, and I want to say, Jesus did not say that the church was completely blind and unable to see. Otherwise, he would not have told them to get eyes off. 
eye salve cannot cure blindness. It can only heal defects and problems with your eye, with your eyes. Uh, it's a medication. So this church, the church of Laodicea, is partially blind. They have skewed vision. Has anyone here ever been partially blind before? All right, I want to ask it this way. How many of you have been driving and driven up to a petrol station and there at the petrol station, you say, you know what, I have a few minutes while my car fills up. I'm going to clean my windshield. So you get the squeegee out and you clean your windshield, or maybe you don't have those here in Australia. But you clean your windshield, and when you clean your windscreen off, the windscreen is nice and clean, you get back in your car, and you start driving, and uh, your family members say, wow, we can see so much more clearly. We didn't realize how dirty the windscreen was until we washed it off. How many of you have had that experience before? All right, so we've all been partially blind before, not realizing that the windshield, windscreen, was so dirty until it actually got cleaned and we could see the stark difference, right? Well, the church of Laodicea was called spiritually blind. And Jesus was saying, look, you've got an ophthalmologist, you you have an ophthalmologist, the, an eye doctor, someone who specializes in that. And not only that, the medical school in Laodicea manufactured eye medication that was sold throughout the Middle East. They were the ones that provided the healing to the eyes of the people around them. And Jesus was saying, look, you can get rid of your eye medication. You need my eye salve. Your ophthalmologist, he's not the one you need. You need the great physician. You need to come to me. The church needs Jesus, the one who raises the dead, the one who could heal anyone he came in contact with. Jesus was saying, even though you supplied eye medication to the world, you're spiritually blind. The next description that Jesus gives is that the church is naked. He says, you don't know that you are naked. This is also interesting because Laodicea was the center of a black wool industry. Laodicea actually manufactured black garments of black wool and sold them to people throughout the Middle East. They did this, and Jesus was saying, in spite of the fact that you have manufactured wool and, you know, knit and woven things for people to be clothed, you're spiritually naked. This is what Christ was saying. Friends, the greatest dilemma of the Laodicean church is not that they are wretched. It's not that they were miserable. It's, it's not that they're poor or blind. It's not even that they're naked. Their greatest problem is that they thought that they were okay. Of those five descriptive words, those weren't really the, the greatest problem. The greatest problem is that the Laodicean church said, we're okay, we're increased with goods, we're wealthy, we're fine. There's nothing wrong, we're okay. Listen to this powerful quote from Testimonies to the Church, volume one, page 417. Here is the greatest, and I just want to give you a little context here. Ellen White is speaking in reference to those people in Matthew chapter 7, to whom Jesus will say in the future, yes, you may have healed people in my name and cast out demons in my name. And as they come to him and they say all of these things and they're not entering the kingdom of heaven, they're confused, Jesus says, depart from me because I never knew you. In context of this, Ellen White says in Testimonies to the Church, volume one, page 417, here is the greatest deception that can affect the human mind. These persons believe that they are right when they are wrong. These people believe that they are right when they are wrong. Why is this the greatest deception? Why is this the Laodicean dilemma? Why is it such a problem? The reason is because if we don't recognize our need, will we go to somebody for help? Yes or no? If we don't recognize that we're in need, we won't go to someone for help. So to Laodicea, Jesus says, you think that you're okay. You think that you're healthy and happy, but you're wretched and miserable. In spite of your wealth, you're poor. Although you have an eye specialist and you manufacture medication, you're spiritually blind. Although you make robes and supply them to the world, you're actually spiritually naked. What a wake-up call. What a wake-up call. Brothers and sisters, 
This message isn't just to a church in a place far away, in a time period far removed. This message is for us. This message is for today. We may boast in our wealth and knowledge of the truth, We may point to the fact that God has directed our church through the gift of prophecy and through visions. We may take pride in believing that we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus when in reality we are spiritually poor, spiritually blind, and spiritually naked. What a dilemma. What a dilemma. What is the answer to our predicament? Is there any hope for us? Of course there is hope. Listen to this. Testimonies of the Church, volume 4, page 87. The only hope for the Laodiceans is a clear view of their standing before God, a knowledge of the nature of their disease. A knowledge of the nature of their disease. Friends, our hope is in Jesus. Amen? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. He alone can give us a clear view of our standing before God. Jesus alone, the heavenly physician, can accurately diagnose our disease and give us the real treatment. Friends, Jesus tells us, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Jesus doesn't stop there. The Savior does not just point out the problem, but he supplies us the solution. The message continues, and the message becomes one filled with more hope filled with the blessed words of Christ. Let's continue to read together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Praise the Lord that Jesus does not just point out the problem, but he supplies the solution. This is always the case, my friends. Now remember, remember that the greatest problem with the Laodiceans was not any of these details, these five descriptive words Jesus gave of them. The greatest problem, the dilemma that they faced was that they didn't recognize their condition. We're all too prone as human beings to, you know, to think that a message doesn't apply to us but that it applies to someone else. Isn't that right? You know, we even may be sitting here tonight and, and thinking, you know, I, I sure hope Sister Sue is, is listening, or I hope Brother Bob is here, or man, I really need to get a copy of this and, and take it to, to so-and-so. We tend to have thoughts about a message not applying to us if it's unpleasant or if it's uh, a strong message. But we think that it tends to apply to others. And I was in a rush to class a few weeks ago, and I grabbed an apple on my way, and I started eating it in the car. I didn't finish. As I was walking into class, I, I carried the apple with me, still munching on it, and I sat down in class, and my teacher was speaking and lecturing. I was just listening, looking at him, making eye contact while I was eating my apple and chewing, and uh, about seven or eight minutes after I finished my apple, our teacher said, class, I just want to give you a kind reminder from our dean. He's asked that we eat food only in the dining area upstairs. So I'd like to ask that you refrain from eating here. Thank you very much. And at first, as he started talking, I said, yeah, yeah, you tell him, Dr. D. Yeah, those guys bring their granola bars and getting crumbs everywhere. And, and then toward the end of what he was saying, he looked straight at me. And I was like, oh, He's talking to me. <laughs> He's talking to me. This message is for me, specifically. Friends, we're all too prone to think a message doesn't apply to us, but that it applies to someone else. Let's resist that temptation to think that, and let's remember that the Lord has a message for each one of us, specifically. His question to us is, what is your standing before me? Let me ask you, what is your standing before the Lord tonight? Before you answer and, and say, you know, my standing before the Lord is great. It's fantastic. I have, you know, I'm doing amazingly. I just, I just want to remind you of a few individuals who thought that they were okay. We can think of King David. King David, who after committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah, 
he was still oblivious to the seriousness of his sin. It wasn't until God sent Nathan the prophet that David's eyes were open to his true standing before God. And then we think of Peter, impetuous Peter. Talk about someone who, who didn't think that Jesus' cutting words applied to him, right? Jesus said, all of you will betray me this night. And, and Peter said, no, Lord, they may all betray, but I will never betray you. I would die for you, Lord. Peter spoke these rash words. Jesus was told by Peter that he would even go to prison and to death for him, but he denied even knowing him with curses and with swearing. And then there's Paul who was persecuting the people of God in the name of God. Paul who, while he was on the road to Damascus to destroy more believers, that Jesus finally appeared to him in bright beams of light. Paul became physically blind that he might spiritually see. He saw that he had been fighting not for God, but against him all of this time. Friends, if such great men of God have been blind to their spiritual condition, are we immune? Are we immune? The reality is that it's all too possible to slip into the rut of ritualistic singing, of praying and attending worship services, but going through the motions of religiosity when our hearts are far from Christ. God looks down at so many of us and says, you make a great profession of faith, but your heart isn't in my possession. This is the case with so many of us, and we may not even realize that God is saying, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Jesus says, my child, I have so much more in store for you. If you will just give yourself to me unreservedly, you will commit everything you have and everything that you are into my hands. I have so much more in store for you. Praise the Lord that the Savior supplies the solution. Amen? This week we're going to be studying together into the Laodicean message, and we're going to see that this is not a message of anything but of hope. The Laodicean message is a message, yes, of stern correction, but it's out of love. Jesus says, as many as I, what? Love, I discipline and correct. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn around. Jesus has incredible plans for our lives. He wants us to know what our standing before him truly is. It was in the Philadelphia airport on the east coast of the United States. I was in the U.S. catching a, a flight on the way home from Toronto, Canada, where I was at a friend's wedding. I went to the bathroom, and uh, I was on my way to the next, uh, the next terminal where I needed to catch my next plane to go to Sacramento, which was closest to my home. Now, I sat down and found the terminal. It was at gate A13, and I sat down at A13, and I looked at my watch, and I said, wow, I've got six and a half hours. So I got my computer out. I put my headphones on and listened to some nice, beautiful Christian music, began replying to emails. And time went by, and I was the only one there at the gate. People started coming, and finally some people came. I, after about three or four hours, no, by now it had been about five hours, I asked someone to watch my things and decided to go to the restroom. And as I was going there, I passed a restaurant. And as the, the scent of the food entered my nostrils, I thought, man, that food smells good. The Lord impressed me. Justin, you, you ate an hour and a half ago. You don't need to eat again. I was like, yes, yes, Lord, of course, you're right. I, I don't need to eat again. I just ate. So I continued on. I, I went to the restroom. Now, on my way back, I made the mistake of lingering a little too long in front of that restaurant. I said, I'm just going to see what they have. And that led to one thing, which led to another. And before I knew it, I had a, a bowl of pasta and veggies. Now, I went back and, and sat down at my, my gate. And by now, it was two minutes away from our boarding time. I began to eat, and I wanted to finish before we boarded. But to my surprise, 10 minutes finally passed by, and no one was boarding yet. 
I said, well, if everyone else is still here, I'm not going to get left behind. So I kept eating. 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Finally, I finished my pasta and veggies. I went up to the gate and, you know, by now I was worried. I looked at my ticket and I said, you know, the plane should be almost taking off. There's about 10 minutes until our flight's going to leave. Why aren't people getting on the plane yet? So I go up to the gate and as I'm about to ask the uh, airplane attendant what was happening, I see that the sign doesn't say Sacramento anymore. It says Daytona Beach, Florida. I said, oh my goodness, Daytona, what happened? And I said, isn't this flight, isn't this gate going to Sacramento? They said, oh no, that was changed a few hours ago. It's now gate A8. I said, oh no. So I grabbed my backpack, held it close to me, and I started running as fast as I could. I got down to A8. I turned the corner. I talked. I saw the, the attendant there. I looked out the window just in time to see the door being shut. The Segway was pulled away. And as it was, I, I looked at the, the flight worker and I said, isn't there something that, that can be done? I, that's my flight. Can't I get on board? And he said, no, it's too late. I'm sorry. And then he said, are you Justin from Toronto? <laughs> and I just hung my head and said, yes, I am. And he said, we were calling for you. We were calling for you. Didn't you hear the final call? Friends, because I fell and decided to disobey the Lord in some seemingly small thing, I was not in a place where I could hear the final call. Can we hear the Lord's call to us? The earth's history is wrapping up quickly, friends. Jesus is coming very soon. Are we ready to meet him? Are we ready to meet the Lord? Tonight, just as we close, I want to invite you to turn to the person next to you. And we're going to pray together. We're going to ask the Lord to reveal to us anything in our lives that may be preventing us from hearing his voice. Friends, how many of you want to be able to hear God's voice clearly in these last days? Amen. Praise the Lord. We have no time to waste. Amen. No time to lose. Jesus is coming soon, and we need to clearly be able to hear his voice. We're going to break into groups of two and three and pray. And as you pray, I invite you to pray the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where the word of God, and just pray this with all your heart. Say, search me, O God, and try my heart. Know me, excuse me, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, it's all too easy to think that we're okay, to feel like we're spiritually okay when we're actually not. But if we go to the Lord and ask him to reveal to us if there is anything separating us from him, he will be faithful to do so, amen? So let's turn to the person, to our right and to our left. We're going to close together. In just a few minutes, when it sounds like everyone is done, I'll close with a prayer from the front. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Indeed, great is thy faithfulness, O God. Lord, thank you so much that we have a Savior who does not just point out the problems in our lives, but he supplies us the solutions that we need. Lord, we thank you that it's not until we see and recognize our brokenness that we recognize our need of you and truly come to you. And Lord, we ask that none of us would leave discouraged, but encouraged because we know we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We know that you are coming soon, Lord Jesus, that you are coming for a people who perfectly reflect your image. And Lord, we see our own inadequacies, but we claim the promise that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it forward to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this promise, Lord, and we know that you are a God who cannot lie. So we claim the promise, and we ask that you would teach us what it means, especially this week as we 
recognize the solution that you offer to us, the solutions that you promise us. Teach us what it means to walk with Jesus day by day and to allow him to live out his life within us. Thank you so much for your goodness, Lord. And as we close with just one song, may it be the prayer of our hearts that as we go from this place, we would never go from your presence. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.